paid a plumber $115 to come in and install a new toilet flapper and it stopped the constant running of the toilet but every so often it gets stuck open mm. so so I was hearing running wasn't sure if it was the AC or the toilet so I had to go down and like oh you should warn me yeah Ooh. catch my breath take my old lady handful of pills and vitamins Mm. Oh no! Oh, that was one of the good ones too. Can't lose that one. Hello everyone and welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And welcome to this hellscape of a summer day. Uh, so <laughs> I will share with you a funny meme that someone had posted to Facebook, if I can <laughs> find it. So, Ottawa's, Ottawa's 12 season. Winter. Yep. Fool's spring. Uh-huh. Second winter. Yep. Spring of deception. Uh-huh. Third winter. Yep. The pollinating. Yes. Which we just finished like two weeks ago. Yeah. Because this year was way off. Real spring. Yeah. Last week. Summer. Here we are. Core of the earth, which is where we are. We're heading into. Yeah. Uh, this week. Yeah. Uh, false fall. Uh-huh. <laughs> Second summer. Yep. And actual fall. Yep. And then we start the cycle all over again. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah. I was like, this is actually pretty, uh, pretty descriptive of... Yep. <laughs> climate change is going to kill us all. Well, did you know why the pollen is getting so much worse? I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that we're trying to kill the planet and overcompensating. Yes and no. Uh, So yes, climate change definitely has something to do with it. But since the 50s, all the city planners, when they put trees in, have been putting in male trees. So, because female trees are the ones that produce seeds and pods, so they're a bit messier, so they've been putting in males trees or genetically modified male trees. Right. Um, But the thing is, male trees are the pollinators. Yeah. So you've got all these sexually frustrated pollinating trees. Yep. And instead of having a mixture of male and female trees like you would in a normal forest in city centers, you have just these extreme concentrations of male trees. And like they've been doing this since the 50s. This is so now you have 50, 60 years of all of this being predominantly male trees. They're matured. Because, uh-huh. you know, like trees don't mature in a couple of years. Yeah. They take decades. So now you have full grown, predominantly male trees and all of these like city parks that have been around for 50 years pollinating the shit out. And now we have climate change. So they're all pollinating at the same time like we had this year. Right. And then you have some trees that aren't native to your areas, like um, some of the ornamental trees that they'll do in stuff like downtown Toronto. They're really big pollinators. So, because again, they'll be planting those male trees and they're pollinating. So it's actually um, sexually frustrated male trees. Basically what's happening is we're getting covered with like Mother Nature's version of Axe body spray. Yeah, yeah, basically, yes. Awesome. Yeah. I don't like it when it's aerosol, and I don't like it when it's coming off of trees. Yeah, so. Oh, boy. Yes, I was reading that report a couple weeks ago, and I was like, that is very interesting. Oh, boy. Uh, Just one of those many little ways that we have screwed over the planet. Um, For my birthday, I picked up the book Humans, The Brief History of How We Effed Everything Up. And it goes through a bunch of those situations of, like, it seemed like a good idea at the time. time. (laughs) Yeah, because, like, it seemed a good idea because these don't produce fruit, they don't produce the pods, they don't produce the seeds. So it seemed like, hey, let's clean up clutter and not have as much mess and grossness around. We are, as a species, doomed, and we earned it. Very true. On that note, I have to correct myself from my Alice in Wonderland story. As I was doing the edit, and I was listening to it, and I was listening to myself talk about how he was a confirmed bachelor, I thought to myself, huh... I don't think I actually read that anywhere, and I just made a series of assumptions based off of context clues. Turned out, no, Lewis Carroll was married to his first cousin, which might be why it wasn't mentioned anywhere on any of the websites. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep that on the demo. Yeah, he was married. (laughs) 
So I was wrong. <laughs> he was not a confirmed bachelor. He married quite young, and she was, in fact, his first cousin. And one of the things I read was that he might have had that stammer later in life, because usually you outgrow a stammer, uh, but she might have been a bit of a bully. Mm. And so he never had the chance to grow the confidence he needed to outgrow it. Aww. Another reason why he might have preferred hanging out with little girls and children to his wife. So. <laughs> Aww. Now I feel bad for making fun of you, Lewis. <laughs> no. <laughs> Still. He married his cousin, so... That's what they did back then. Still. I know. I know. <laughs> so that's my eratarium, eratorium. Allie will correct me on the pronunciation. She does usually when I screw up the words that I've only read and not heard pronounced out loud, but it was my mistake. So that's that. But I'm looking forward to making a whole new series of mistakes with today's stories. So. Yay! So am I. I'm probably going to mess this up. I usually do. Uh, who's going first? I think I went first last week. So you go first this week. So I go first this week. Okay. Dan was very uh, uh, interested in your Chernobyl story and oh, yeah? he wants to say that yes, he would actually go and visit Chernobyl on a short well, tour. Make sure you take out a really sizable life insurance policy before you let him go and do that. And uh, when he microwaves himself, <laughs> you can cash in. Congratulations. Very <laughs> sent him to the vet. <laughs> uh, so my story this week. I'm a little worried we're going to overlap because it's based off stuff that's in the news for the last little while, mm. which is why I like push myself to prep my second story just in case, because I, anytime we pick a topic based off of news, it's an issue. But anyway, so you might have heard about this over the last week. Uh, there is a Facebook group of people talking about planning a storming of oh, Area I'm not 51. So yeah, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, so the whole idea is they're going to meet up outside of Area 51 and storm it to find the truth about aliens. And uh, the whole situation is just further examples of how humans are really, really dumb. But I wanted to know more and figured there was a lot of ways a story on this could grow. So I wasn't sure which rabbit hole I was going to take on it. Finally settled on talking about Area 51 and not so much the conspiracies, though there is some of that. This rabbit hole is more about the background that helps support those conspiracies, because I think everyone knows the yeah. term Area 51, but like the background of it yeah. is by necessity Why secret. <laughs> yeah. So buckle up. So what's happening? Um, now, on June 27th, an event page popped up on Facebook called, quote, Storm Area 51, They Can't Stop Us All, and the event is scheduled for September 20th. It was jointly created by pages called, quote, shitposting because I'm in shambles, Smiley Coon, who is a gaming video creator, and The Hidden Sound, which is an event planner from Little Rock, Arkansas. Somebody legit attached their business to this venture. I have a feeling somebody's going to be out of business by September 20th, so they can go to Nevada and <laughs> sit there and watch it all unfold. Uh, the only description for the event is, quote, we will all meet up at the Area 51 Alien Center tourist attraction to, and coordinate our entry. If we Naruto run, we can move faster than their bullets. Let's see some aliens. And that's it. That's all there is to this event, is that one brief description and a map for Google coordinates to Area 51. When I started writing up this story, however, one million people were confirmed as going to the event and 912,000 were interested in attending. Obviously, this is just one of those things that you click on, for the most part, because it's funny. Uh, one of my friends had clicked going, which made me question <laughs> a lot of things. <laughs> Evaluating that friendship. Yep. Obviously, this is a joke born from the meme and youth culture. I highly doubt any of the creators or the friends that probably share the crap out of this post when they first saw it had any intention of being involved in the actual storming of a military base. Because, let's face it, that's what they're talking about. Storming an active military base. And guess what? The U.S. military is not ticking around, and they are not laughing along with everyone else. Air Force spokesperson Laura McAndrews said, quote, Area 51 is an open training range for the U.S. Air Force, and we would discourage anyone from trying to come into the area where we train American armed forces. She added, quote, the U.S. Air Force always stands ready to protect America and its assets, end quote. We want to shoot your asses. Yeah, we are locked and loaded and ready for September 20th. But let's back up. Let's back all the way up and take a look at Area 51 as a whole. Uh, as you might expect, getting information on Area 51 has proven very difficult over the years. 
It's a military base in the middle of nowhere used to test experimental equipment. So duh. Like, it's by design that you don't know much about it. But various interviews with former employees and some freedom to public information requests have ensured that some details have trickled out over the years, culminating in the early 2000s when the CIA declassified a 350-page report entitled The Central Intelligence Agency and Overheard Reconnaissance, the U-2 and Oxcart Programs, 1954 to 1974. Hey, sidebar though. Yeah. Wouldn't it be hilarious if people did store a minute and it turns out it's just like an administrative base? They're like, (laughs) (laughs) suckers! And now we can shoot you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So here's the steno pool. (laughs) You know? I don't think it's quite that harmless. No, but <laughs> that would be hilarious if, like, over the years, it's just been... Yeah. Like smoke a, and mirrors. Smoke and mirrors, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, most of what we know comes from the CIA report, uh, and the report is primarily about the development of the U-2 spy plane, but in doing so, it lays out a lot of the history and the broad stroke specs for the base. So, that's how most of the confidential declassified information is out there. One of the weird little factoids that have been released about Area 51 is that it's actually under the jurisdiction of Edwards Air Force Base, which is in Southern California. So it's not even a proper military base itself. It's actually a satellite base, if you'll pardon the pun. As I was prepping my notes, there were a lot of puns that got worked in here, so I may or may not stop, like accidentally worked in, and I was just like, oh man. So if you're not familiar with where Area 51 is, and I needed to check a map, which was light on details, by the way, which, not surprising. Yeah. Uh, here are some details for you. The general area we're talking about is to the northwest of Las Vegas, Nevada, in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Highways 6, 93, and 95 create this giant loop around an area that's basically just gray on a Google map. But within that loop are two important government installations. The first is Tonopah Test Range in the northern half and Groom Lake, which is about in the center. Tonopah Test Range is the site of restricted airspace for testing, but it is also currently used for nuclear weapon stockpile reliability testing, which sounds terrifying to me. Yes. Uh, research and development of fusing and firing systems and testing nuclear weapon delivery systems. So, none of it's very friendly up there. Moving south on the map, if you zoom in really, really tight, you can see a couple of minor roads and something just south of a place called Groom Lake, which is clearly an airport, and uh, a Del Taco. This also pops up on the map. And this is the base known as Area 51. (laughs) Yep. The name for the installation is deceiving. Uh, Technically, it's Groom Lake and not Area 51. Because it's the Mojave Desert, there's not exactly... Uh, rush on land on lakes out there. Uh, Groom Lake is in fact a dried out lake bed which makes it perfect for testing aircraft since it's flat and very big. It is also in a spot that was near the Atomic Energy Commission's proving ground which had been used in World War II as an aerial gunnery range for army pilots. So it has a long history of being a testing facility. The nearest thing on the map to Area 51 is a small military installation called the Sugar Bunker. Uh, The image attached makes it look like a military checkpoint, so I'm guessing it's not the kind of place that welcomes very many tourists in. Uh, And in fact, signs are posted all around the vicinity indicating that trespassers would fall under the jurisdiction of military law and that the, quote, use of deadly force is authorized as per the Internal Security Act of 1950. Those signs and the inhospitable region around it is pretty effective deterrent, um, to date at least, so much so that there are no fences surrounding the area, which to be fair, it would be really hard to put up that much fence and monitor it effectively. I don't know, ask Trump, he's trying to build a wall, isn't he? I know, exactly. So it was at this point when I was looking at the maps that I started thinking that US government was using Google to troll people. Because right outside the sugar bunker, Google shows a restaurant called, quote, George's Best Lasagnas. <laughs> and you did say there's a Del Taco in there. Oh, no, the Del Taco's on the base, according oh. to the map. This one is just outside the base. Uh, but George's Best Lasagna is open 24 hours and only closed on Wednesdays. So it's open Thursday morning through Tuesday night, 24-7. 
24-6, I guess, because they're closed on Wednesdays. So I think at this point, Google and the government are just having some fun with a few people. Uh, so on the whole, uh, the location for this Area 51, and I'm just going to keep calling it that because that's what we all know yeah. it as, it's perfect. It's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, that nowhere is incredibly inhospitable to, to, to uh, and is great for deterring looky-loos. It's only about 100 miles and a 25-minute flight from a large international airport, and that's McCarran in Vegas, and I'll give you more on that later. So really, if you were going to sink a U.S. top-secret military installation anywhere, this is tailor-made for it. Uh, in fact, the name Area 51 gives you some indication of how out-of-the-way slash nondescript the space is. In 1955, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, quote, approved the addition of this strip of wasteland known by its map designation as Area 51 to the Nevada test site, according to a declassified CIA history. So they just draw a bunch of lines on a map to mark out this grid for the nuclear testing site, and this was Area 51 on that map. And that's why the name stuck. Throughout its history, though, it's been known as Paradise Ranch, Watertown, and Dreamland. All very ironic names, I'm assuming, because I would not call this a paradise, nor watery, nor dreamlike in any way. But uh, the real story of Area 51, as we understand it, says the site of this big alien conspiracy, actually starts on February 21st, 1955. And on that day, Richard Bissell, a senior CIA official, wrote a check from an agency unvouchered account for $1.25 million and mailed it to the home of Kelly Johnson, chief engineer at Lockheed Company's Burbank, California plant. Lockheed had been selected to build and deliver 20 brand new design spy planes, but needed a cash infusion to get the project off the ground. No pun intended, once again. Uh, the cash advance came from an unvouchered account, which was important because it meant that it was not subject to the, to the usual oversight policies that public funds are subject to. So that information comes from that big 350-page declassified report. Uh, it's very long and public service-ease uh, in its language, but it gives the whole history of the project on the National Security Archives website, and I'll link to that. But basically, the project became the development of the U-2 spy plane, and they were built slash tested at Area 51. And it's an interesting kind of snapshot of military technology and the workings of government at the time. But the U-2 spy plane was a pretty impressive piece of tech for 1955. First of all, they were capable of flying higher than any plane ever had at the time. Their upper ceiling was 60,000 feet. Uh, they were highly reflective of sunlight, and one report of the era described the effect as, quote, catching and reflecting the rays of the sun and appearing to the airline pilots 40,000 feet below to be fiery objects. So if commercial airlines fly at 40,000, no, at 20,000. 20 to 30. Yeah. And these things are flying at 60,000. Wow. Yeah. It's a huge gap. Uh, remember, we're talking about the Mojave Desert here, so there was a lot of sunlight to do a lot of reflecting off of those <laughs> wings. It was a single-engine plane, and they were designed in such a way to be incredibly light. In fact, one of the early tests, uh, Lockheed's chief test pilot, who seemed to be testing the plane for taxiing purposes, accidentally became airborne. As soon as he hit 70 knots, which is about 80 miles per hour, he suddenly realized he was airborne, leaving him in, quote, utter amazement. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Just going so fast that the nose went up and he was in the air. Uh, Which is, I don't know, very, if it was 88 miles, I think it's very... Right. Back to the future. Yes. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> Marty! <laughs> yeah. Right time period, too, and everything. <laughs> Uh, so this test pilot uh, once told CIA historians, quote, I had no intention whatsoever of flying. I immediately started back towards the ground, but had difficulty determining my height because the lake bed had no markings to judge distance or height. I made contact with the ground on a left bank of approximately 10 degrees, end quote. He then bounced back up into the air. <laughs> and he had to Boing. give... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He had to give landing a second try, and he successfully landed on the second go-round. One of the reasons the plane had to be lightweight was so that it could carry massive amounts of fuel on board in order to be an intercontinental plane. Another reason why it flew so high was to keep the fuel consumption low and travel larger distances in less time. 
The plane had a sleek and modern for the time look. The tail was attached to the main body with just three tension bolts in order to save weight. The wings were ultra long, thin and narrow. The landing gear was lightweight and consisted of a set of wheels at both the front and the back. And basically what I'm describing to you is something that moves really fast, really high, is capable of flying anywhere, and looks like nothing that commercial pilots slash the public had ever seen before. It is no wonder that the government estimates that approximately one half, if not more, of the UFO reports from the late 1950s and the 1960s are actually reported sightings of these flights, the test flights of these aircrafts. It makes sense. Yeah. Especially if it looks like it's radiating or a big ball of fire. Yeah. And you just, when you have no form of reference for yeah. it, no, it, it makes sense. Well, I mean, UFO is, sorry, UFO is unidentified flying object. Right. Okay. It's not terrestrial or not. It doesn't, yeah. that term doesn't actually assign a yeah. connotation. Yeah. What we have is a U.S. military installation in the middle of nowhere testing extremely valuable military assets, and no one in command wanted to talk about it. In fact, the existence of the site wasn't publicly acknowledged until 2012. It was the first time the Army copped to the fact that, yeah, there is a site out there, and yeah, we do own it. <laughs> there were some instances where its existence couldn't be ignored, technically, like a 1995 lawsuit brought against the U.S. government by Area 51 workers who claimed to be sickened by toxins at the site, including anti-radar coatings and other classified materials that were burned in open pits on the base. But a government... Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That screams Agent Orange all over Yeah. Uh, a government lawyer in that lawsuit told a judge at the time that there was no name for the operation located near Groom Lake. But the first public acknowledgement of the site came from that declassified report on the history of the U-2 that I was mentioning earlier. And the academic who obtained the report via a freedom to information request isn't entirely sure why the reference wasn't redacted from that report, since it very easily could have been. It's either slipped through the cracks by accident or the government just decided we're done <laughs> wasting time and energy pretending. <laughs> What's certain is that no one is talking about the work that's actually being done up there. But let's assume that you are a U.S. military personnel or a contractor. How would you get to work? Well, you could drive. It's only about 100 miles, so it would take you less than two hours, but that's a hassle because of the location. So most employees actually live on the base up there. Uh, or they do during the week and commute. Uh, and they commute in and out of Vegas and tend to fly out to the site on Mondays and then back on a Friday. Now, there's no Delta or Southwest flight servicing either Tonopah in the north or Area 51 itself. Rather, the U.S. government runs its own airline that is known affectionately as Janet Air. Uh, and Janet Air has been an open secret in Nevada for years. Janet! Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Janet operates six Boeing 737s and a handful of smaller aircraft as well. Uh, officially, each flight goes back and forth from McCarran in Vegas to Tonopah every day, uh, several times a day. But those listening to aircraft chatter have identified that there are about half of the flights that either terminate or start at an unnamed location near Groom Lake, aka Area 51. Each of Janet's planes are unmarked. They're painted white with a giant red horizontal stripe down the middle that's visible on both sides, and that's it. There's like one tail number, but there's no other identifying marker on the planes. It is literally the worst kept secret in Vegas because you see them flying in and out. Constantly. Constantly. <laughs> like, ha! Who's that? Plane that looks like nothing else we've ever seen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the first of the 13 to 16 daily flights leaves Vegas each day at 3.38 a.m. from an unmarked terminal known as the Gold Coast Terminal on the airport's grounds. And it's basically an employee shuttle back and forth up to the bases. Rumor has had it for years that Janet stands for, quote, just another non-existent terminal. That's an acronym. Uh, but in reality, Janet was the name of Richard Sampson's wife, and Sampson was a senior CIA agent in charge of Area 51 from 1969 to 1971. Aww. Yeah, so <laughs> very cute. Those in the know will sometimes see job postings for the airline, though it's never identified as being Janet Air. Uh, but the work location and some of the descriptions in the job ad make it a dead giveaway of what it is. A recent job posting for flight crew said that the ideal candidate would be, quote, level-headed and clear thinking, preferably with top secret government clearance, 
and able to perform, among other tasks, light cleaning of aircraft interior interiors, and candidates should have a minimum of a high school education and be able to coolly handle unusual incidents like hijackings or bomb threats. So they put it on Front Street. <laughs> this is a dicey job. <laughs> and that's recent? That's not like a 70s? Because yeah. at one point in the 70s, like, there oh, were so many yeah. plane hijackings that yeah. steward, like airline workers were just, like, pilots and, and flight attendants would just bring extra clothes. Like, I, I know I'm going to to Sweden from somewhere, but I'm just going to bring some shorts just in case we get hijacked and <laughs> sent to been, Cuba or yeah. something. <laughs> End up in Egypt here on yeah. tarmac for two weeks. Yeah. 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 Uh, nope, this was a post from um, early 2010s, I think it was. Yeah. I'll link to the article. Um, as we've discussed in the past on our show, one thing necessary for a conspiracy and for conspiracy theorists is a lack of official information, of which Area 51 is a mecca. We don't really know what they're doing down there. What we do know is the U.S. military is very active on the surrounding public land in terms of patrols and monitoring activities. The lawsuit from the 1990s by those employees who got sick from toxin exposure telegraphed some clues. They're doing something with anti-radar materials, there's dangerous toxic components to the materials that they're working with, and the preferred disposal method for these items is burning. Otherwise, you'd bury it or just toss it, so... They're really serious about that shit not getting out. There's like a hair sticking off mm-hmm. your glasses. There we go. Hair. Thanks, bud. Uh, the U-2 plane started the craze of spotting unidentifiable flying objects that the government just refused to talk about because it was new and a highly valuable technology that was being developed. Uh, the isolated location, the history, and existing installation probably means that similar work is going on up there, but... Well, Uh, Official details that get released or leaked from time to time are augmented by people like Bob Lazar, who, in the late 1980s, was interviewed by Las Vegas television station KLAS-TV, and in that interview he indicated that Area 51 was being used as a site to reverse-engineer alien technology, from which the majority of the conspiracy theories have sprung, (laughs) was good old Bob. Here comes the man in black! Exactly, yeah. So do I think there are aliens on the base? No, probably not. Some people out there could say it's what they want me to think, but based off of the available evidence, I'm going to go no. And the likelihood. And the likelihood, yeah. I mean, Trump's been in power for two and a half years. He would have said something at some point by now. Uh, I do think the U.S. military has an amazing asset on their hands, though. Uh, A hard-to-access military base that has so much government protection that you can be shot on sight if a soldier sees you as a potential threat, even if you're doing something as simple as taking pictures. So, yeah. (laughs) Uh, I do think the years of secrecy have become a self-fulfilling prophecy, though, which has given them a lot of power. And that brings us back to the September 20th plans to storm the base. So I started writing this story a couple of days ago, and I finished it up today. And in just those two or three days, the number of people who have indicated that they were going to attend the event has jumped by 600,000 people. So now we're up to 1.2 million people. Good and those interested Get in- a job! <laughs> and those interested in attending has jumped by another 300,000 people. So that's almost a million people more. Almost 2 million people are now aware of this joke event happening. CNN has tracked down the page's originator, a guy named Maddie Roberts from California, who clearly states that he started this as a joke and is now terrified that the FBI slash CIA will have some questions for him. I think those are legitimate concerns because you know there are some dummies out there who are going to show up. Oh, I know. On September 20th with plans. Not all million of those think there are two million think that this is a joke. All you need is one person from Florida to have seen that. That's true. <laughs> and all bets are off. Uh, dear old Maddie said he started the page after listening to an interview of Bob Lazar on Joe Rogan's podcast. So there are a lot of things in that in statement that indicate to me that it was going to be a bad idea from the jump. But Maddie seemed to have thought it was going to be fun. He probably just didn't think other than his friends That's that it exactly. was going to go anywhere. And then all of a sudden it's viral. And how do you stop this? You can't. You don't. Yeah. That's exactly like it what just, told CNN. Yeah. <laughs> and I haven't read this article, but yeah. He said it for the first three days. There was, like, no more than, like, double-digit people knew about it. And then third day just exploded. So, the power of the viral-ness. 
Now, I'm sure none of our listeners are dumb enough to be one of the two million people attached to this group on Facebook, but if you are and are taking it seriously, please don't. But if you do, please identify yourself because I have a bridge that I would like to sell you. (laughs) And so now that you know all about the background of Area 51, you can speak knowledgeably when you discuss conspiracy theories with your drunk uncle at Thanksgiving. Yeah. And that is my story of Area 51. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I feel bad for the guy because you know it was just like probably a drunken joke, and then all of a sudden, like, oh, like. But CNN didn't explain why that event company from Little Rock was involved and how they put their name on it. Like, I mean, I guess Arkansas is Florida adjacent, but (laughs) again, I might have thought it was funny, and now like, because like, how do I backpedal out of this? Right. Because the U.S. Army is not, it's not a joke to them. No. <laughs> Nor should it be. Like, they have to take everything like that seriously. Yeah. Even if you are planning on Naruto running at them, like a cartoon character from anime, like they still have to be prepared for that. That's what that is. I yes. <laughs> I know. I had to look it up as well. <laughs> I'm glad someone looked it up. <laughs> but tell me your story. So, my story has also been in the news, so I was a little worried. Okay. <laughs> but it's not this, but they do tie in quite nicely. Okay. So, this is the 19th, so tomorrow, do you know what tomorrow is? It would usually be the 20th. Yes. Do you know what the 20th of July is? <laughs> no. It's the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Oh, I did see stuff about that online. So, I thought this was the time to t- uh, look at this giant leap for mankind. Good call. Mm-hmm. So have you read... Uh, you're answering my question, then you haven't read any of the articles leading up to this anniversary. You've just seen... A little bit. Yet. Some headlines. Yep. So there's quite a lot out there, and lots are being said about the one small step, one giant leap for mankind, or giant step for mankind. Uh, mostly that uh, Neil messed it up, and it was supposed to say a small, small leap, small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. There's a surprising amount of discussion on this topic, and I'm going to say right now, I don't really care. <laughs> it's a great line. Yeah. Everybody knows it. Maybe he did say it. Maybe he messed the A. It was also 50 years ago, and NASA was getting a feed from 384,400 kilometers away. Right. And even in 2019, uh, let's cut Neil a break, and also to think of how many, um, you know, I can't get decent internet connection from a tower that is 17 kilometers away from my house. Yeah. So I'm going to cut Neil Armstrong a break and NASA a break because this was 50 years ago and they're getting a, you know, a feed from the moon. We should A, be talking about that and B, if I have to sign my name more than three times in a five minute period, I forget how to spell it. So <laughs> mine is just scribbles. Anyway, so <laughs> I dropped the S. <laughs> So, also, think about how many times in this podcast we've said the wrong word. Oh, endlessly. <laughs> so, and sometimes we catch it right away. Sometimes it's when we re-listen and we're like, oh, that's not what we meant to say. Or someone looks just, at the other person crazy, like, what? <laughs> or we just slur the word and then we don't realize that we're mm-hmm. not saying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and we don't have 500 plus million people watching us live. Nor are we in a completely different environment than we've ever known. Yes. So, let's talk space, baby. Okay. (laughs) So, in 1969, the uh, the Cold War was at its hottest. The Vietnam War was thankfully winding down. Protests and the civil rights movement made the U.S. a place of tension. The people needed something to cheer for, and the space race was just it. Yep. Did you like my... I did. (laughs) The race between this U.S. and the USSR to get to the moon captured and still does the attention and the imagination of people all over the world. I think most people can pinpoint the moment when the race really started, and that was May 25th, 1961, when President John F. Kennedy announced before a special session of the Congress that the U.S., So the United States planned to put people on the moon and return them safely to Earth before the end of the decade. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, could we just take a moment and pause about that? Like, it had been thought that it was possible. NASA wasn't up and running to this degree of being able to do that. And within eight years, it got done. 
I'll talk about that. That's what most of this is about. Sorry. Yeah, My turn to cut in on your story. I know. I do it all the time, do you? <laughs> so, at that time, NASA was only four years old. Yep. Uh, and had a total of 15 minutes of human spaceflight experience. And that still hadn't gotten quite out of our... Hmm. Our... Atmosphere. Atmosphere. And that had been only... That 15 minutes had happened three weeks before JFK speech. <laughs> JFK was writing checks. NASA didn't think they could cash. Actually, when NASA launched that astronaut Alan Shepard into the brief jaunt into suburb suborial space. So that happened again three weeks earlier. So why was JFK so confident in his promise? Well, because NASA told him so. Right. Because the Russians had done it. Well, no. In 1959, just a year after its establishment, the space agency had identified Mars as the long-term target for its human spaceflight program. According to a space, a space policy expert, John Logsdon, by early 1961, quick and dirty analysis had convinced the agency that while a crude red planet mission would be tough and require significant innovation, there was no technical showstoppers that would prevent it from happening. Okay. So they told Mr. President, if you commit the resources, Mr. President, we can think we think we can do it, a that being a crude lunar landing. So the NASA leadership high degree of confidence in their basic ability of a lunar landing program, even though it happened not quite the way they thought it was going to. <laughs> so they basically did what everybody who's ever put, it, put in a proposal for a project. So they wanted to get the money. Mm -hmm. So getting the money, of course, was a big part of pulling the moonshot off. And JFK had a big advantage here with his vice president, Lyndon Johnson who was the former majority leader of the U.S. Senate with a long history of pulling purse strings on Capitol Hill. So it sounds like to me, like NASA wanted to get to Mars, so they figured they could use the moon landing to seed money to get there. Yeah, so that makes sense. They could get everybody invested in moon. They could use the moon and the seed money to start the program, right. to build the crafts, to test it out so that they get get to Mars. Makes sense. We're still not at Mars, but anyway. <laughs> so a large part of public support and of Capitol Hill was, of course, was rooted in the desire to beat their Cold War rivals, the Soviet Union. JFK's announcement came just six weeks after the Soviets had pulled off the first ever human space flight, launching Yuri, a last name I will not pronounce because I will do it terribly, on an orbital mission, something the U.S. wouldn't achieve until February 62. Uh, His flight was the second high-profile space race victory for the USSR, which had launched Sputnik in 1957. Mm -hmm. So in general, Kennedy felt great pressure to have the United States catch up and overtake the Soviet Union in the space race. Conversations with uh, NASA's chief, James Webb, convinced JFK that the U.S. perhaps had a lead over the Soviets in the moon race, despite these previous setbacks. And that was actually what proved to be right. Yeah. Because NASA notched milestone after milestone in a stepwise fashion, working up to Apollo via the Mercury and Gemini human spaceflight program. So they just sort of, they had a plan and they were slowly getting there. They Whereas, were also not starving their people in order to fund these operations like yes. the Russians were. The Soviets continued to beat the U.S. to the punch through the mid-60s. For example, cosmonaut Alexei performed the first ever spacewalk in March 65, three months before the NASA's uh, astronaut Ed White would do the same thing. But some of these Soviet firsts were rushed. Yep. Shocker! <laughs> And somewhat smoke and mirrored affairs. And in the end, the USSR just couldn't keep up. Yeah. The nation shot for the moon and failed. It built a large moon rocket called the End One, but never launched it successfully. Then the US, the US claimed the greater space race victory of all on July 20th, 1969, when Neil Armstrong took his first small step on that lunar surface. We all talk about how amazing it is that we got to the moon at all and how low tech it was because 
how many times have you heard the same uh, amount of memory is in yeah. your pocket calculator that was in the ginormous computers that sent people to the moon? Well, Hillary Clinton just posted on Instagram today the picture of the code that was used, and it was written by primarily by a woman, and the code was in these binders that stacked up to about her ears. <laughs> well, the thing is, it was, yes, it was low-tech, but because there was, well, A, not a whole lot of tech, but also it was just, it was still human tech, because all of these calculations, everything that the computers were stipulating, bidding out all of that code was all double and triple checked by humans right they didn't trust it now as we are now we trust the computer over the human well it's because we know each other ourselves very well <laughs> but we also have like better computers yes um but do you also know how young the mission staff were judging by the picture Hillary clinton put up today very young yes uh the average age of people working on the mission and definitely in mission control was 26 wow so they had this young hungry group working for them also if you put someone on the moon at age 26 where's your career going after this what is your career high yeah that's you true. peaked early yeah you're just coasting from there on out and like you could do cool things like you could have built you know one of the voyager that are still going but when your mom is talking about what you've done in your life, she's yeah. going to be like, my... The stories end at 26. Yeah. The story ends at 26. <laughs> Unless you give her grandkids. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but also I'd imagine it'd be young because older people wouldn't want to risk their career on this potential pot shot into the deep space of maybe not. <laughs> yeah, like, so that's not even, like, the astronauts were all flyboys for the most part. Yeah, they were yeah. scientists, and now we see scientists. Um, but, like, just the average age of all the engineers mm -hmm. and all of the people, the mathematicians and stuff working were very, very young. But, you know, they're really driven by things such as Star Trek and stuff. Like, a lot of that inspiration for mm -hmm. a lot of these things happened in, because they became interested in sci-fi as right. children and kids. It's actually this weird circle of the potential sightings of ufos attributed to aliens opened up the imagination for space exploration yeah so it's so strange how these things sort of just build upon each other and then we've had these massively great successes because of coincidences you know, coincidences and, and then the imagination flourishes in young people and they're like well i want to you know i want to go to space i want to meet or just do Doctor things. Who and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> have make it with alien space women like we might have a shot boob. <laughs> yeah. Like Shatna. Um so the road to the moon was dangerous and not as dangerous as the trip. Sidebar. Uh you'll not get you'll not be shocked to find that astronauts could not get insurance. <laughs> Can they now? The mission is was deemed too risky, so none of the astronauts could get insurance. Fair. That's just an underwriter who knows what's what. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's also a bunch of accidents that almost stopped the mission before it got off the ground. So we're going to go through a few of those. Uh, number one, the first accident was on January 27th, 1967. A fire ignited in the Apollo 1 command module in the middle of a launch rehearsal. And all three astronauts died. <sighs> and that's the problem with exploration. It's dangerous work. Yep. So what <laughs> happened was all three astronauts inside the module, Roger Caffey, Ed White, who was our first space, U.S. spacewalker, mm -hmm. and Virgil Gus Grissom died in the blaze. They all sound white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sarcasm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, investigation le later found that a stray spark, likely from a damaged water wire, started the fire, and the module's pure oxygen environment mm. and flammable interior fed the flames. Yeah. And then the astronauts couldn't escape because the hatch door opened inwards, and the pressure inside from the fire was so great that they couldn't pull the door open. What a terrifying way to go. I know. Oof. Is there anything worse than burning alive? In a small enclosed area yeah. with two of your friends next to you? I don't yeah. think so. No. 
So this fire set the mission back a year and almost halted it altogether. But NASA took stock, redesigned the hatch, and enacted other safety measures, which ensured that the Apollo 11 mission wouldn't face similar obstacles in space. By obstacles, we mean giant fiery death. Yeah, giant fireballs. Uh, Neil Armstrong actually almost died. Hmm. Sorry, nearly died just a year before the July 1969 launch. On May 6, 1968, he was piloting the Lunar Landing Research Vehicle, an aircraft meant to simulate a moon landing, and during the flight in Houston, leaking propellant resulted in a total failure of the flight controls. As the aircraft hurled towards the ground, Armstrong ejected himself and parachuted down from about 30 feet or 9 meters above the ground. Oof. The lunar landed exploded into a fiery ball as it hit the ground, and Armstrong missed certain death by seconds. Yeah. I'm sure they could move. I'm sure they could have moved ahead without their main flyboy, but it would have again set them back because they would have had a train. Oh, but the morale, yeah, knock too. <sighs> yeah, just what is like. Then that was just a year after the three astronauts died. Lost three, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and then the third one, even though the list that I've uh, linked to in my show notes has about six or seven of them, um, the third one is the broken switch that probably a lot of people a lot of the articles have mentioned so once they had landed so this is they're on the moon armstrong and aldrin suited up for the first moonwalk but they were putting on their portable life support system backpacks so those big giant iconic backpacks the astronauts accidentally knocked off the tip of a circuit breaker this controlled the power running to the ascent engine which was what they needed to get them off the moon when the astronauts saw the damage, they alerted ground control, who worked on a solution while Armstrong and Aldrin went out on their moonwalk. However, Aldrin, who was an engineer, managed to figure it out on his own after they returned to the ship. What did he do? Well, he stuck a marker in there in order to press the, the breaker <laughs> down. Uh, and we think about astronauts now as, like, as I said, scientists mm -hmm. and, like, doctors and scientists and, and people with uh, really high, like, degrees. But a lot of these original astronauts were literally flyboys. Yeah, they were test yeah. pilots. They were top guns. They were yeah. these sort of slightly crazy-ish risk takers. This brings me back to the whole, like the more alphabet soup you have the alien name, the less common sense you have in these situations. Like, you need the common sense and less the alphabet soup. Yeah. Like, the alphabet soup will get in the way of just jamming a marker in there. <laughs> but it was because Aldrin was also an engineer. He was like, ah, I know how this works. And I could just, if I, as long as I get this breaker to touch, yeah. and I need something that doesn't con conduct, here's this felt-tip marker. I don't know why they had a marker on there or, like, a pen. I don't know. It was, like, a marker or a pen. But... There's something. I think there's a line from the West Wing about, like, they couldn't use pens up there because the ink, the gravity messed with the oh. ink. So they spent millions of dollars trying to develop um, a pen that would work in space, whereas the cosmonauts just got pencils. So... Yes, that's, the, I think, the difference between, like, NASA and, <laughs> and the Russian space agency. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, here's a pencil. Yes. <laughs> um... So, you know, these flyboys, these these top guns, they were crazy enough to hurl themselves into space in a tin can wrapped in fabric. Yeah. That nobody had done before, right? Like, so... But that was their mentality. Yeah. It's not going to shock anyone that the mission was full of dangers, so much so that the astronauts, as I said, cannot get insurance. I didn't realize I put that in there twice. Um, and even after the lunar module touched down on the Sea of Tranquility that night, there's no guarantee that they would be able to make it back safely to the orbiting command module where their crew, crew member Michael Collins waited, let alone back to Earth. So knowing this, Nixon asked his speechwriter to create a plan in case of a moon disaster. So this plan started with a call to the widows. Mm -hmm. And then a public address. That speech was to go like this. And no, I can't do a Nixon impression. I'm sorry, guys. Come on, Andy. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. Oh, I'm going to, if I'm the widow getting this call, I'd be like, I'm going to stop you right there. 
you can pull your head out of your ass and talk to me like a real human being. No, this was the speech to... The widows. No, this was a speech to the public address after. So oh, okay. There was a call to the widows and then, <laughs> then the, public the public address, address. and this was the public address. Even then, it's a real douchey way to start the opening. <laughs> it was Nixon. Yeah, but, like, I don't picture Nixon that flowery. It was a speechwriter, so. True. <laughs> uh, these brave men, Neil Armstrong, Edward Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery. The speech continued. But they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. I think this was a specific if they couldn't get back, but they were still alive. Um, yeah. Um, more men would follow in the Apollo astronauts' footsteps. Saffron, who was the uh, speechwriter, speech writer, wrote, and surely find their way home. But Aldr- Aldrin and Armstrong were the first, and they will remain the foremost in our hearts. For every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come will know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind. So following this somber address, when NASA has cut off communication with the astronauts, I'm guessing, (sighs) if they were still alive with that. We're just going to hang up on them because it's a real bummer, so... (laughs) Or wait till they're dead. Uh, They were to be giving a modified burial at sea in a public ritual that condemns their souls to the deepest depths. So they were supposed to have a priest to then do, like, a, a distance burial at sea. Like... Were they just going to drop empty coffins off the side? Were they going to find some homeless people in a morgue that had passed away? Like, what? how far were we going to take this? I think they were just going to do, like, the rhetoric like a priest would do. And I condemn these souls to the sea. Like, what? I know. <laughs> I did not say this was a good idea. <laughs> oh, interesting ripple, though. If they were Catholic, what would happen when the resurrection and the second coming happen? Would they like because the whole thing actually is, Jesus comes back and everyone raises from the grave and ascends to heaven in their bodies? So are like would like buds be like, "Hi guys, just coming down from the moon and boy are my arms tired!" Like because wh- he was Catholic. <laughs> the first bit of liquid and food taken up there was his holy communion. He actually brought oh. in baggies <laughs> and like oh, had man. a chalice given to him by his church. So he could have Holy Communion up in space as they were landing. I stopped going to church long before I was allowed to drink, but I'm saying those wafers on a Sunday morning when you've been up late, oh my god, so dry. <laughs> the wine really would have helped with the dog, the hair of the dog to bit you, and I never got any of it. <laughs> well, they don't do that now because of public, like, health. It must have been a long time since I've been in church then, because yeah. the last few services I saw, there was definitely wine getting passed around. <laughs> you just get the wafer now. <laughs> So they take all the fun out of it. Now I'm really yes. glad I don't go to church anymore. <laughs> so on that fun fact note, <laughs> so I will actually finish off with two fun facts or, or a few fun facts to lift the mood. Buzz Aldrin chose a very fitting first song to play as he stepped out on the moon, which was 20 minutes after Armstrong. Can you guess what it was? No. <laughs> it was. He played a cassette of Frank Sinatra's Fly Me to the Moon. Oh, I was like trying to think of like songs about like bridesmaids and never the brides or second in line or something like that (laughs) yeah um most photos from the mission feature aldrin and not armstrong because armstrong was described as an eager photographer and was actually the one behind the camera for much of his time on the moon makes sense and my favorite fact was nasa had put together like a detailed flight plan for the mission obviously see flight plan pan and not plan right so also, easy. are you saying they weren't just going to rocket them into space and go, meh, we'll see no, what happens? No, this is the detail I mean is that they had included a nap for Aldrin and Armstrong when they after they landed on the moon before they went out. Aww. Yeah. Because they were going to be able to, like, knock down the adrenaline enough to take a so, nap. And you will be shocked to know that the astronauts were too excited about <laughs> stepping out on the moon and they skipped the nap. <laughs> yeah. Probably like little kids at the door. Like, can we go? Can we go? Can we go? I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait. Let's just go. Is it Christmas? Is it Christmas? Yeah. Is Santa here? Is Santa here? Oh my God. Oh my God. I don't have to pee. I just want to go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to sleep. I don't have to sleep. I just... <laughs> yeah. Real cranky at the end of that day, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so I was originally, when I thought to do this, I was going to touch on conspiracy theories, but I fell down the rabbit hole of like the sort the of actual more... landing. Yeah. Um, and of stuff that I didn't know about the mission and so that I ran out of 
time, so I probably will cover some conspiracy theories about the moon next week. The loop right on back to Area 51, because a yeah. lot of people say that's where they staged the moon landing. Exactly. So we'll yep. tie this all up with a bow <laughs> next week. So I hope everybody enjoyed uh, my moon landing. Nice. Yeah. So Very excited. You could not pay me enough to go to space. Oh, hell no. In any form of capacity, anything. No. Especially now that the Russians are the only ones taking space tourists out because Richard Branson hasn't gotten his business model together yet for that. He's, like, working on it, and um, Tesla guy, too. Yes, SpaceX. SpaceX. But the Russians are, like, taking money off of Backstreet Boys to put them into space and then not delivering, but, like, still taking money, so... But they are also doing all the actual legitimate astronauts as well. Yes, because NASA... Like, and that's the interesting thing. Like, NASA led the way, and they got the money that they wanted, and then they won and people stopped caring so the russians are like still doing the work yeah. whereas the americans have mothballed their actual well, shuttles because they didn't really innovate them like the thing is what the big thing with spacex and and um elon musk our favorite future bond villain right um his big thing is like these there's a lot of parts that were really wasteful because yeah. certain things couldn't be reused um like the space craft itself the shuttle could be reused but yeah. like not any of the other parts that so they were like trying exploded to exploded and burnt as yeah. it went yeah um but it, they also like they just sort of did that for so long that then those the challengers and not the challenger because that one blew up bad but, example but yes <laughs> but because they say models they've been pumping those puppies out for years and yeah. then everybody's like well there has to be a better there has to be a a better system and also why do we keep doing this like there are still, but NASA's still leading the way in many things. Like, they're still putting all of those rovers and various things yeah. out there in deep space. But it's like, why are we still just spending sending people just to the International Space Station? It's still yeah. valid, but do, does everybody need to be doing that? Or can we just give the Russians some money because they seem to have this, like, cornered... The, um, the guy who owns Skinwalker Ranch, this is a weird little walk. You've heard of Skinwalker yeah. Ranch? yeah. The guy who bought it after it got really famous for being, like, a site of alien touchdowns, um, I think his last name is Bigelow, um, he was friends with, I want to say, Harry Reid, who was responsible for the kind of black money, the dark money appropriations for a lot of these space projects. Yep. His theory, if I'm remembering right, and I think I'm remembering this from the podcast Astonishing Legends, was that you can't build for space missions on Earth. Like, the environment is just too drastically different. Hmm. Like, if you want to build a boat, at some point you've got to test it in the water. Like, you can't build Titanic on dry land and be 100% confident it'll work. So why are we thinking that we can build spacecraft on Earth for an intergalactic mission? Like, the work has to be done up in space because the materials are going to react different, the everything. And so as crazy as that guy is, and I think he's, like, like, you want to talk future Bond villain, like, this guy's just been real good at keeping it quiet, but, like, he's on my radar for one of the categories, like, one of the potentials. So for all of that, I think he's got a really good point. Like, so to me, that's, if the International International Space Station could kind of get itself together and become more of a... But it's hard, like, it would have to be, like, a docking state, like, a huge, yeah. like, dry dock up in space, right? But, like, that's yeah. really what the next iteration should, should be, be. Yes, exactly. If we want to really be serious about going to Mars. And, I mean, they've been they've been doing things. Like, they had um, the guy who went up for a year. He spent about a year, which is the longer than anybody had. Mm-hmm. He's an astronaut. And he has a twin brother who's also an astronaut. But what they did is they took his... The nice thing about him, he's just unique, is he spent a year up in the space station, and now his brother won't go to space anymore, and his brother had stopped. Right. So they're, they've got this, they're identical twins. So you can compare the effect. Compare the effect of him being a year in space on his body versus this basically copy of himself, yeah. right? Like, and... Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. There's a... He has a whole book out. It's quite interesting. Hmm. Like, especially just talking about, like, as he first came back and he'd, like, have just these wicked, like, his wife would be wake up and he'd just be in, like, full body cramps even, like, months after. Cause, oh, boy. Because your body's still slowly getting used to being back on Earth and he's fine now because all of a sudden he aged, they seemed like he was aging really quickly and then, like, his cells 
when he first came back and now it seems to have like plateaued out oh. but they're going to be following him until yeah. the two of the the two two brothers for for the rest of their lives now right. and he's like a human mm-hmm. guinea pig nice yeah um have you ever heard of the author clive cussler he did the movie or the movie sahara with matthew yeah. mcconaughey yeah. based off one of his books um so that summer i was telling you about where i was like working like 10 hours a week and just like reading i spent that summer reading like the clive cussler dirk pitt novels and there's one novel where um it always involves like some sort of like world-ending conspiracy and i can't remember what the conspiracy was but i do remember it ended on the moon with um <laughs> u.s marines who had no air astronaut training had like involved in like a full-on like street brawl with like Russian Marines who also had like no training and like the Armageddon of it all pretty much but like Clive Kessler was making like out to lunch with it because he was just like oh they both were racing up there to beat the clock and the Russian commander was experiencing space fatigue and space nausea and I'm like you're pulling this out of your butt you don't know what you're talking about (laughs) did you google this (laughs) you couldn't have because this was written like forever ago (laughs) And I was just like, that is a reach, Clive Custler. A reach. <laughs> space NASA. So let's take usual words and put space in front of it. It's like they were creeping over like the craters. And I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm spending my summer doing this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing with my life? Oh, the first like three novels of that series are terrible. But then at that point, you're just like really invested and you go like all out. I read all the books in one summer. It was delightful and yet terrible at the same time. Sort of like watching National Treasure or... Yes, yes. It's a very National Treasure feel to it. And Laura Croft, like you watch them. They're terrible movies. Right. But you enjoy every second. Yes. And the whole like dirt pit of it all is he works for like the National aquatic agency it's like nasa but in the water i don't know and he still ends up in space it's somehow he ends up in space that's what i hated about like sahara the movie because like they become a national agency at the end and i was just like why did they call themselves a national agency before they could like officially call themselves like it was a whole like plot hole that i was like this didn't get addressed and my dad's like they were looking for lincoln's body in the sahara desert what plot hole are you looking for here <laughs> so lincoln's i thought they were looking for that iron yeah boat. in the yeah. book though it's oh, okay. it's lincoln's body is in that iron boat. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, it's, I vaguely remember this movie. It's a whole thing. <laughs> it's only my love of Matthew McConaughey. Right. And, uh, like, that. that's why I read the books, because it was, like, coming out. And I went yeah. to go see it in the theater on, like, a random weekday at, like, noon. I was the only one in the theater. Legit. Like, I'm not even lying. It was just me. <laughs> they, like, stopped in several times to see if I was still there, or if they could turn off the film and save the energy. And I'd be like, nope. Right here. <laughs> I'm enjoying Enjoy this. the crap out of this. Rain Wilson, hilarious. <laughs> Dwight, before he was Dwight. Yeah. Gold. <laughs> who was it? Who's the female? Um, Penelope, or the one he was dating. Penelope Cruz? Yeah, I think it was Penelope Cruz. Yeah. And Steve Zahn is his sidekick. Yeah. Yeah. Good movie. Yeah. We'll watch that tonight. <laughs> like, it's good. It's also terrible, but oh, it's yeah. good. It's National Treasure-esque. Yeah. To the nth degree. And it's like Matthew McConaughey, peak McConaughey, with the hair and the... Yeah, the bod. Yeah. Good times. Good times. <laughs> so on that note, I now have to go watch Sahara, so we should probably wrap this up. I'm also starting to feel the heat yeah. sitting in the sun. So uh, that is it for our show this week. If you want to learn more about the show and see our show notes, head over to our website, which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com. While you're there, check out the merch tab, which takes you to the Redbubble store, so you can pick up some of our adorable merch. You can also check out the support tab, which links to our patron page, and you can come on board as a patron, which gets you access to the not-so-secret secret part of the website. And you can also find us on social media. On t- at Twitter, we are uh, Rabbit Holes Pod. Mm-hmm. On Instagram, we are Rabbit Holes Podcast. And Facebook, we are her Rabbit Holes Podcast page. Uh, check us out. I've done a really poor job this week, but next week should be a little less psychotic. Uh, I'm also toying with a couple of other Hootsuite uh, type apps to to keep the content going. Um, if you like what you're doing, you can. If you they like what they're doing. Oh, if you like what we're doing. There it is. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it's been a long day. It's been a complicated day. Uh, if you like what we are doing, uh, uh, you can give us a review, rate us, recommend us on all the various uh, platforms. That does a lot for us. Um, we love to get new listeners, and we appreciate you guys. We appreciate what you do is 
passively listening to us yes, in the car. So. For sure. Uh, speaking of which, if you would like us to cover a rabbit hole that you find enjoyable or that you would like us to dive down for you, uh, you can always email that to us at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and also just to remind you that the Ottawa Podcast Festival is coming up on August 24th. Our lineup announcement went out last week, so you can head over to the website or the social medias. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well, because those are the only three that I know anything about. So no surprise that the festival mimics the show's yes. social presence. Uh, head over to one of our social media or the website to check out the lineup. Very exciting. And that's it. There's only one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.